morning, everybody. I don't know whether I should be saying welcome home or you should be saying welcome home, but welcome home. There's always room for one more. It's good to be back with you. Thank you, praise team, for leading us before the throne. Can we get an amen? Let's give it up for them one more time. The question this morning, can God's goodness and my suffering coexist? Last night, for those of you that were here in this space for the premiere of Return to Palau, you got a glimpse into our family and the life of Melissa and her experience with God's goodness in the midst of incredible suffering. So the question, can God's goodness and my suffering coexist? I think one of the most foundational questions to our human existence is the question, why? We start asking it at about two or three years old. Isn't that right? If you've ever been around young kids, why? Why? And it kind of peaks at about, I was doing some research yesterday, peaks at about five years old when uh, us as kids, we ask the question, why? Oh, the sky, the sky is blue. Why? Uh, there's, there's sound coming out of a speaker. Why? We need to go to the park now. Why? We need to go home from the park now. Why? And as we grow older, I think we continue asking the question, but instead of verbalizing it, it sits a little bit closer in our hearts. We stop asking it out loud incessantly, which we can say amen, praise the Lord for some of us, right? But we don't stop asking it on the inside. Because we can see the the devastation of a Russian invasion in Ukraine and ask the question, why? God, why are people being destroyed? Why is evil continuing to flourish? You can see a couple years ago, the insurrection at the Capitol building. People raising the banner of Jesus, but not acting at all like him. Why? COVID-19 pandemic loss of a family member, we've lost people in our community to that. Why? Human suffering, why? People abused, why? A young girl of a missionary family survives a brutal murder. She's left to live the rest of her life without her family. Why? If God is so good, we sing about it, right? Crown him with many crowns. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering in this world? That's the core question to our human existence. Sometimes it's difficult for us to reconcile the two. Can God be good and I still suffer at the same time? Can God's goodness and my suffering coexist? And in the short time we have together this morning, I'd like to take you to a story in scripture to unpack that theme a little bit deeper. We're going to be in the book of Job today. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Job. We'll have it up on the screen here in a moment. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And this is not one of those messages. I I normally do it. I'm breaking character here. We normally uh, stick in one particular place in Scripture, and we just marinate on it and, and just see what God has in store from that piece. But today, we're going to zoom out from the trees and look at the forest. We're going to look at suffering through the eyes of Job. We're going to look at God's goodness through the eyes of Job and go through a journey in that book. One often misinterpreted, one often misquoted, one that when I was younger, like, why in the world is this in the Bible? I don't get it. But as I've grown a little bit older, only a little bit older, I've come to see 
the beautiful face of God in the story of Job. So this book of Job begins this way. There's a glimpse into a divine council. There's this meeting of of leaders in the universe that God has pulled together. And Satan shows up to this meeting. And we pick it up, Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord asked Satan, who's a part of this heavenly council. He says, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Wouldn't we love to have that in our, in our epitaph or in our obituary, right? The story continues. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. Verse, uh, verse 10, you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out. Take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then calamity strikes. One afternoon, I'm sure it was a pleasant afternoon where Job was living, a messenger comes running to his house. He didn't get the, the notification on his phone. They still had to, you know, share messages by feet. Ding! No, no, he came running and yelling, right? Job, 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 Job. A band of marauders has come through and has stolen all of your livestock. And just as, as, as those words are exiting that messenger's mouth, another notification shows up. Job, 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 Job. You, you, you've lost all of, all of this part of your property. And another person comes running up. Job, you've lost this. Job, you've lost that. And finally someone comes and says, Job, you wouldn't believe it. A terrible tornado came through town. We've experienced one or two of those this week. Amen? Well, maybe not amen. Praising the Lord for surviving it, Right? I know there was some, some property damage. I was talking to someone this week. They were so thankful that their life was preserved. The tree fell the right way. If it had fallen the other way, it would have been right in a bedroom where they were sleeping. The tree fell the right way. We praise God for that. Tornado rips through the community. Job, you wouldn't believe it. Your sons and daughters were having a party together and it destroyed their house and the roof collapsed on them and you've lost your entire family. Talk about suffering, right? Talk about calamity. Talk about losing everything. And here's Job's response. Job chapter 1, verse 20. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. How many of us would be able to say that in the face of the suffering that Job has just experienced? He says, hey, Came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the story moves from earth back to heaven. Satan's not satisfied. The council convenes again. And and the meeting happens. Job chapter 2 verse 7. Well, I jumped ahead of myself. Meeting happens. Satan goes to God and says, hey, it only, he only didn't curse you because I didn't take his life or I didn't touch him. If I was able to touch him and God says, I'll give you permission to do that. Take him, touch him, his health, but not his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Verse eight, Job scrapped, scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. Verse nine, his wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. 
you've been in that experience where family is divided over suffering, one person's like, I'm done with God. Forget this. Forget my experience. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Those are some strong words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the mm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Should we, but he's got, he's got something good here. It says, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Verse 11, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to, the comfort, uh, to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Waiting, wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief in verse 13. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word for Job, to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. What an experience. Job, in the midst of incredible suffering, says, hey, are we going to accept the good and not accept the bad? I'm going to come before God. I'm going to pour myself out before him. And his friends come, and they, they do good things for about seven days, and their good things were keeping their mouths shut. <laughs> right? Sometimes uh, when somebody's experiencing suffering and grief, we want to rush in and we want to say all the right things. Oftentimes just showing up and keeping our mouths closed but our arms open will do a world of healing and help and support for someone who's suffering. And after that week of silence, they begin to open their mouths and they have a dialogue with Job. And in the beginning chapters of the book of Job, we don't have time to read them today, we get a glimpse at the prevailing theological assumption of the time. That God gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people. And if Job is experiencing bad, then he must have done something wrong. But Job sticks to his story. He says, no way, Jose. I've done nothing wrong. I've lived a life of integrity. And through the opening chapter, we see again and again that the author is telling us he's done nothing wrong. Even in his calling out to God, he has done nothing wrong. But that hasn't stifled the internal turmoil that Job is experiencing. Though he knows he's not done anything wrong, there is a struggle inside and he's frustrated. To the point in Job chapter 7 verse 11, he cries out, I cannot keep from speaking. I must express express my anguish. My bitter soul must complain. We can open up our hearts and our feelings to God. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to cry out and wonder and ask the question why and to stand up and say, all right, God, I can't keep from not speaking at this point. I'm going to let you have it. God's big enough to take anything that we throw at him. Yet Job, in the midst of that, in Job chapter 13, verse 15, is able to say, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. So I'm going to argue my case with him. I'm going to take him to court. I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to tell him the way I see this in my life. You know, there's something inside of us that wants to believe there's a purpose behind everything we experience, right? Job says, no, there's, there's something going on here that this experience can't be wasted. You see, God never wastes your suffering. God will never waste your pain. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. 
We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And then verse four, and endurance helps strength of character and character strengths are, strengthens our confidence, uh, uh, confident hope of salvation. And verse five, and this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Our suffering produces endurance. And the question in our mind is, okay, so God is just sending stuff our way so that we can produce endurance and then we'll have more faith, right? I don't think God needs our suffering to build better faith or stronger faith in our hearts. I think God will use suffering to build it, but I don't think that God needs it. William J. Abraham puts it this way in the book, Among the Ashes. Suffering can also be the occasion for a deeper encounter with God and thus with a stronger, more robust faith in God. It can be the occasion rather than the reason for the maturing of a naive faith in divine providence. God will use it. He does not need it, but he will never waste your suffering. And the rest of the book of Job is carried out with Job and his friends arguing back and forth. Job says, I'm blameless. And they're like, come on, Job, like, tell us. Give us the tea. Spill the tea. Let us know. What did you do? We can talk this out and then everything will be all right. You just repent and everything will be okay. He says, no, I don't deserve this. Something else has come upon me. And finally, it it builds to this great crescendo where Job is rending his heart before God and then God shows up. You ever had those moments where you've been calling out to God and then God shows up? You're like, ooh, (laughs) I've stepped into some territory that I don't know that I'm prepared for. I've got a lot of bark, but my bite right now is looking pretty small. And in response to Job, God takes him on a journey. It starts in Job 38, particularly with Job 38, verse 4. God speaking. Where were you when you laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. God calls Job out. He's like, all right, you think something going going on here? Where were you when I began speaking things into existence? When things were exploding into life and this universe was being manifested in a marvelous way. Job, where were you? You think you can run this thing? You think you got ideas about all this stuff? Where were you? And God then takes Job on this incredible journey. Takes him to the highest of the highs, the lowest of the lows, and he asks him questions like, who forms the rain? Who puts clouds in the sky? Who rends the valleys? Did you make this animal? What about that big Leviathan in the ocean? Did you do, did, are you able to make sure that one doesn't eat that one and, and, and make sure this, these people are here and, and take care of this suffering person and that suffering person? And the questions go on and on and on. Job, where were you here? Were you here? Were you here? Were you here? I can imagine as Job is experiencing this from God, there are things in his mind that he's not even able to understand what God is articulating, the intricacies of the universe. And I imagine that it's like my wife, my sister, and my mom, who are all nurses, getting together and talking about nursing. I'm good for about the first five minutes, and then there's language that it's like, wow, okay, I need to do some more study. And then I realized that that's probably what I sounded like in advanced Greek in seminary when we, you know, kind of got into the language there. Anyways, that was supposed to be funny. <sighs> so... God, at the, you'll, you'll get it this afternoon. Uh, God, as he's taking, taking Job through this experience, he's going from the trees that Job's looking up, this one tree of suffering, and God says, okay, let's look at the forest. And I think this is what God is doing, where we see pixels, God sees the whole picture. He says, I've got this big thing in mind. You've got these two little blurry pixels that you're worried about in your life. 
And yeah, they're a little blurry. I'll acknowledge that. There's a little bit of suffering going on. But when those two pixels come into the greater picture, I'm doing something beyond your wildest imagination. God's great conclusion with Job is, I can work with this. I can do something with what's going on in your life. Here's the big picture, Job. If I can do all of this, I can certainly do something for you. Author, speaker, and pastor Dwight Nelson was with us on our our trip to Palau, and he put it this way in one of the messages that he gave afterwards. God speaking to us, I can get you there from here. Wherever your suffering is, whatever you're, you're deep and mucked and mired in at this moment, whatever it might be, I can get you there from here. Whatever suffering you're experiencing, I can handle it. I can work with this. God says, see, there's so much going on in the background that I'm taking care of. There's so much more to this story than you're seeing. These two pixels, they're but a fraction of the entire picture. William J. Abraham puts it this way again in Among the Ashes. In and of ourselves, we are truly incapable of comprehending in any detailed way how God works in either creating or permitting suffering in this world. There's so much more going on in the background that we have no idea what God is trying to put together for our salvation and for his honor and for his glory. But see, here's the thing. That paints a picture of an absentee God of a God that says, don't worry about it, I'll just explain the details later and you'll be okay with it. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well with me. That doesn't sit well because I, I, I see in scripture that there's a God of compassion and a God of love and, and, and a God of care. And can we find that in the book of Job? Or is God just leaving Job to be like, hey, here's the big picture, tough beans of what's going on like right now. It'll, it'll all be better when, when heaven comes and, and things will be okay. Here's Job's response, Job 42, verses 1 through 6. After this incredible journey that Job has just experienced with God. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom and such ignorance? He says, it's, it's me. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. The way God handles this experience with Job is not one of, let me slap you around a little bit, give you the big picture, and then send you on your way. I can imagine God coming to Job with tears in his eyes. He says, do you know how much I am invested in this universe? I care so much about where you live and about what you do that I am working in every single aspect of your life and the life of everybody else and everybody that exists in this universe to make sure that this world operates in a way that you can come to know me. And Job responds with his heart. And by the way, God restores Job's possessions. He doubles everything he had. At 500 camels, he gives him 1,000. 500 donkeys gives him 1,000 donkeys. And by the way, Job had three daughters, seven sons at the beginning of the book. They're killed in the accident under the roof. God gives Job another three daughters and seven sons. Well, hold on. Job said God, God doubled everything. Yeah, he did because there's the hope of the resurrection. 
There's the hope of the resurrection. Job will see his first 10 children again. Ministry of Healing. Ellen White, in this beautiful book, Ministry of Healing, puts it this way. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. So we step back and see the bigger picture. We wouldn't choose any other way because we see how God is working in our lives. And it's at this moment in Job's life and at this moment of the story that we glimpse God's heart his tender, compassionate heart for Job and for us. There's so much more going on in Job's life. We see the heart of God, his tender compassion that he would restore to Job double of what he would lost, what he lost. And would give Job the hope he would have 10 more children, but those 10 original children, maybe one day because of what Jesus did, he will be restored with them again. So what about us, right? Like, Job lost everything. Everything kind of works out. Doubled everything. Woohoo! Job lives this incredibly amazing, good life. And you're like, hey, I've I've suffered loss. That hasn't worked out the same way for me. Is there a tender, compassionate God that would turn towards me? I would offer to you this morning that there is, and it's found in the love story of Hosea, the eleventh chapter, the eighth and ninth verse. It was read a moment ago. This is God speaking to an obstinate nation, one that has brought calamity and suffering upon itself and one that has experienced calamity and suffering because of other people. And this is God's words to that people. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you by, uh, like Zebuim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am a God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you. And I will not come to destroy. When God's eyes turn towards our suffering and sin, his heart is turned over within him. There is a seismic earthquake. There is seismic activity in the heart of God in the face of your suffering and pain. There's something inside of him that turns when he witnesses everything that you are going through. There are divine cardiological earthquakes. They rumble at the sight of war and devastation as Ukrainians breathe their last at the hands of a Russian advance. The earthquakes rumble when the fertility treatment didn't work again and the bills come when the the pain is too much. God's heart turns within him as you experience the last breath of a father, of a mother, of a sister or brother. As you get the phone call that no one wants, God's heart turns over inside of him when he leaves you or she leaves you. When the lies are told, when there seems like there's, there's no space. God's heart turns within him when you're outcast and downtrodden and experience abuse and pain. God's heart earthquakes for you. And God's heart was moved when a young girl survived a murder and abduction looking evil in the face. So, can God's goodness and my suffering coexist? The answer, 
is yes. But know this, know this today that whatever you are facing, whatever you are walking through, whatever pain that you bear, whatever scars remind you of the trauma that you've experienced, God's heart turns with compassion for you. And he'll whisper in your ear, I can work with this. I can get you there from here.